What is the best way to treat refractory suffering? You are listening to ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and with me is Dr. Judith A. Pace. Dr. Pace is the director of the Cancer Pain Program in the Division of Hematology Oncology at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine in Chicago, Illinois. Dr. Pace, welcome back to the Clinician's Roundtable. Thank you. Define refractory suffering for us. Suffering can include both physical and emotional effects of having a life-threatening illness. And this would be symptoms such as pain or shortness of breath or agitation that might not respond to all of our available therapies. Is this the same thing as terminal agitation? So terminal agitation might be one type of symptom that would be included under this umbrella that we call refractory symptoms or refractory suffering. Again, it might be agitation, or we sometimes call this delirium. It might be severe pain. It might include severe shortness of breath or even nausea that can't be controlled or other symptoms that despite our very best and very most aggressive efforts, we just cannot get under good management. And what do you think is going on? What's causing this? So it really depends upon the underlying illness. In this case, we're talking about someone with a life-threatening illness with advanced disease. It may be someone who has cancer It may be someone who has end-stage lung disease, end-stage cardiovascular disease, people with renal disease, and all of these illnesses can cause pain or shortness of breath through different underlying mechanisms. And so it's important for the physician and the clinicians involved in the patient's care to really conduct a thorough assessment so that we can identify what the mechanism for this symptom might be and to treat it appropriately and aggressively. And if one treatment doesn't work, we try another and then another until we've exhausted all of our available treatment options. Does the assessment include determining whether emotional suffering is causing the pain? We always look at the meaning of pain for that individual. We always explore what we might call total pain, which is when the individual says they just hurt all over. And when you explore more closely, you learn that they're frightened, that they're concerned about their family members, they're concerned about their own health and well-being, they're worried about the dying process, they're worried about what will happen to their loved ones after they die. And we sometimes call this term existential distress, just the distress of worrying about what's happening here at the end of my life. Has my life had meaning? Is there more that I should be doing Are there other considerations that we should be addressing? What are the types of questions that you recommend to explore whether existential distress exists? One of the easiest questions is to ask, 
Are you sad? Many studies have shown that this is just as important as taking some of these very comprehensive tests of depression. And for many patients, it's such a straightforward question that they can open up and describe for you what they might be feeling sad about, whether they're having any regrets about their life, what their fears may be. So these are the kinds of questions. And we typically will ask open-ended questions. We take the time. We sit with the patient. We don't stand at the head of the bed indicating that we don't really want to hear the answer or that we want to run out the door. We take the time to listen. And, you know, most of us as physicians or nurses, we're quite busy, as is everybody nowadays. And maybe for some of us, we haven't had a lot of training in how to ask these questions. We don't have to do it all. This is where we might call in our chaplain colleagues, our social work colleagues, our psychology colleagues to help us learn about this particular patient and what the source of their distress might be. Have you discovered that if this assessment has not taken place, then no matter what you give the patient in terms of medication, it's really not going to work very well? There are some cases where the emotional concerns can be so overwhelming that if we don't take the time to learn from the patient what's upsetting them, what's distressing them, we, if we don't take the time, we can't learn and we can't address these issues. So for many people, just being open and allowing them the opportunity to discuss their life their concerns, to talk with family members, this will oftentimes allow us to better understand the emotional component of their physical symptoms. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and joining me is Dr. Judith A. Pace, Director of the Cancer Pain Program in the Division of Hematology Oncology at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine in Chicago, discussing refractory suffering. Dr. Pace, if you treat refractory suffering with medications, what type are you using? Well, first, if we're treating the side effects and the symptoms of uh, life-threatening illness, the treatment varies with the symptoms. So, for example, for severe pain, we would use opioids and adjuvant analgesics, and we might even use interventional procedures and non-pharmacologic techniques. For shortness of breath, interestingly, the first-line therapy is the opioid drug. So a medication like morphine or other opioids is very appropriate to help relieve that air hunger that people may experience. And additionally, individuals may experience anxiety associated with shortness of breath. Clearly, that's a very disturbing sensation to not be able to to capture your breath or to catch your breath. And so we would add anti-anxiety medications. Those are just two of the many symptoms that might be considered very complicated symptoms at the end of life as people have life-threatening illness and as the disease progresses. 
And what I really want to emphasize to the audience is that in the vast majority of cases, whether it's pain or shortness of breath or delirium or nausea and vomiting, we can get these symptoms under control. It is really only a very small percentage of people, probably far less than 5% of the population of people with advanced disease, where we would call these symptoms refractory, where we cannot get them controlled despite all of our best and most aggressive efforts. And then what happens in that situation? When we're not able to get the pain or the shortness of breath under control, we talk with the patient and the family, and we offer a treatment option called palliative sedation. This is nothing that we take very simply. We only offer this when we have truly tried all other options. We talk to the patient. We obtain informed consent. We discuss this extensively with the family members as well because palliative sedation will cause the patient themselves to be sedated, to be sleeping, if you will. But the family members will be the ones at the bedside with their loved one in front of them and yet not able to interact. And so that's very distressing for loved ones. We bring in a lot of support for the family. Again, we bring in the chaplains and social workers. We also talk to the staff because it's important that the nurses who are at the bedside who are going to be the ones to actually give these medicines are in agreement with this technique. So the entire team sits down together and comes to consensus regarding whether this is the most appropriate treatment option. What drugs are used with palliative sedation? We would typically use medicines like the benzodiazepines, Midazolam is the usual drug that we use. It's also called Versed. And the reason that we tend to use this medicine is that it can be given intravenously or subcutaneously. It can allow the person to become sedated rather quickly. And once we stop the infusion, it has a relatively rapid um, decline in its effect. And so we can, if the family member wants us to um, have the patient less sedated, we can turn down the drug or stop the drug and allow the patient to become less sedated. That's the most common drug that we employ. Others would use barbiturates. Sometimes we'll use a drug called propofol. And in some settings, people might use opioids. How do you monitor the depth of sedation? So in the recovery room or in the operative suite, there are very sophisticated ways of monitoring sedation. But our goals of care are much different at end of life. We are trying to allow the patient to be relaxed. We're trying to allow treatment of their underlying symptoms and We want them to be able to wake up if we need, if a new family member comes in from out of town, for example. So we monitor by looking at facial grimacing, if the person previously had pain. Does the the brow seem to relax? Do they seem to have less 
clenching of their muscles or their extremities. When we turn them or reposition them in the bed, do they seem comfortable and relaxed or do they cry out or tighten up? If they do cry out, if they do seem to be tensed, then that means we probably need to increase the dose of the medication. Dr. Pace, thank you so much for joining us to discuss refractory suffering. My pleasure. I'm Susan Dolan. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your comments and questions at ReachMD.com, which now features on-demand podcasts of the ReachMD library. Thank you for listening.